The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion by Dr. Brad Bittner, Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this chapel message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning. Welcome to Morning Devotions this morning. What a great privilege it is for us to gather this way uh, in the middle of our working and study day. And I hope that this morning as we open up God's Word together, we'll be encouraged and that He will build us up for His glory. I'm going to open in prayer before we turn to our text this morning. So would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we ask now that you would be gracious to us, that you would open our ears so that we might be careful listeners. We pray that you would quiet our hearts so that we'd be ready to receive whatever it is that you have for us this morning from your word. We pray too, Lord, that you would reveal more of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who is our Savior to us, and that we would delight in all the riches that are found in him. We ask that you would do this for your glory and the glory of Christ's name. Amen. So you know our theme this semester is the great reversals of scripture, and uh, I'm choosing to focus on a reversal found in 1 Corinthians. So you might like to get your Bibles ready and turn to 1 Corinthians. And I want you to listen in our text this morning, which is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, for a sort of two-pronged reversal that we will hear there. And I'd like to begin, uh, it was inspired by Professor Baugh last week, uh, so I'm going to try my best to uh, begin with an interpretive translation that might help you freshly hear it. So have your Bibles open, but you might like to just listen uh, and hear this afresh. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Now just look at your calling, brothers and sisters. See that not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many were in positions of power or influence. Not many of you were born into privilege. But the foolish things of the world, God chose those in order that he might humiliate the wise. And the weak things of the world, God chose those in order that he might humiliate the strong. And the ordinary salt of the earth folk of the world who lack any connections, and the despised folk, the the disadvantaged and impoverished with no status, God chose those, the nothings, in order that he might nullify the somethings, with the result that no one living may boast before God. Rather, from him, From his agency, his initiative, you all are in Christ Jesus, who has become wisdom for us from God. That is, he has become our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that, just as it is written, the one who boasts, in the Lord let him boast. Thus far, the word of God in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. Can you, hear, can you hear that boasting is clearly at the heart of this passage? 
It caps off that first section in verses 26 to 29, when in verse 29 we hear that result clause, so that, or with the result that, no human being may boast before God. No boasting. And whatever verses 26 to 28 have to say to us, the result is clear. There's no boasting, no boasting in ourselves, no human boasting according to worldly standards. All boasting undermined. We might call this boasting subverted in verses 26 to 29. But boasting also figures in the last two verses. Do you see that as well? In verses 30 and 31, boasting provides the capstone to that second section also. Right there in the purpose clause, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9. And so whatever else verses 30 and 31 have to teach us, and verse 30 has far more than we're even going to begin to plumb the depths of this morning, but whatever else they have to teach us, we learn this, the only proper boasting is boasting in the name of the Lord. If you boast, you don't boast in yourself, you boast in the Lord. We might call this boasting inverted. Boasting subverted, verses 26 to 29. Boasting inverted, verses 30 to 31. But how does this work in our text? And why is this the case? And what does this this do for us in terms of our spiritual growth, our studies here at seminary, our ministries now and in the future? Well, what is boasting? Boasting can be justified, can't it, sometimes? So if David Ross, the Cubs manager, the Chicago Cubs, says the Cubs are the best baseball team in the National League Central, well, he's not boasting. He's just telling the truth wonderfully this year, at least for the moment. We can hope for the best. He might say that in an arrogant way or manner, but it's true. It's justified, isn't it? More often, however, we've got a boasting that we encounter or that we ourselves are guilty of, That's unjustified as well as tasteless. Boasting of this kind, where does it come from? It's rooted in false pride. Boasting is actually, all human boasting is actually misdirected glory. Boasting is misdirected glory. And that's really important in 1 Corinthians. My teenage boys have recently pulled me into the Marvel Universe. I don't know if any of you are into the Avengers films and the universe. One of our favorite scenes as we watch together that first movie is right towards the end as Loki and the Hulk are battling it out. You know the one I'm talking about? And Loki you know, stands up and he erupts, enough of this, you're all of you beneath me, I am a god. And in mid-sentence, what happens to him? The Hulk grabs him and just absolutely starts thrashing him around and beating him on the ground, and he leaves him in this whimpering heap. And as the Hulk walks away, what does he say? Puny God, right? So Loki claims boastfully that he's a God, and then he's left whimpering on the ground. And that's, what this, that's the effect that this passage is meant to have on us. By the time we get to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, any kind of incipient pride or remaining pride that we have in ourselves, in our gifts, in our merits, in our ministries, is meant to be whimpering on the ground, dead, completely destroyed. And our text does that for us this morning because I think all of us know when we're honest and when we, when we meditate before the Lord, when we pray before him, that pride still lurks in our hearts, doesn't it? Pride in our status, pride in our achievements, 
overconfidence in our gifts, our connections, pride in our autonomy, our independence. But all of that, all of that, by God's word this morning, needs to be uh, needs to be taken care of and put off to one side completely because worldly boasting is misdirected glory. This was the root of the problem in the Corinthian church. Yes, there were factions. I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Yes, unity was an issue. It wasn't the only issue, though. There was also the issue of impurity, wasn't there? Sexual immorality, impurity of all kinds. So unity's a problem, purity's a problem, but actually at the root of all of those problems, Paul says, and the Holy Spirit through Paul says, it's a wrong view of glory. It's a misdirected view of glory. And it's a theology of glory, we might say, along with Luther, that needs to be countered by a theology of the cross here in chapter one. The Lord of glory was crucified for the sake of sinners. And as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, a gracious God and Father is going to build up his church in unity and holiness. How? By means of that word of the cross. It's the theology of the cross, which completely flips around our view of how glory ought to be attributed properly. Boasting in anything to do with ourselves, Paul says, is misdirected, and it keeps us. And here's part of, here's part of, the, uh, part of the problem with that misdirected glory, is that when that focus is wrongly on ourselves, it's not where it belongs to be, is it? And where does chapter one land with that climax in verse 31? We ought to be boasting in Christ. That's where the glory belongs. And the more we look at ourselves, the more we look at others and elevate them and put them on a pedestal, the less we give Christ the glory he deserves. So what does Paul do? First, he subverts glory, then he inverts it and redirects it to Christ. How does he do that? Well, in our first little section there, 26 to 29, he drives home the grace of our calling and our election, that by grace we've been called from what we were, by grace God has chosen us and made us to be his people. And then second, in verses 30 and 31, he drives home the glory of Christ in a beautiful, beautiful way, that everything we have in Christ, everything we have in Christ is everything that we need. So boasting subverted by divine grace, boasting inverted by divine glory. Martin Luther said, as you know, uh, a lot of helpful things about this, and one of his great little pithy statements was this, it's Latin, Crux probat omnia. How would you translate that, you Latin scholars? Crux probat omnia. Well, we might go for this. The cross finds out everything, or the cross reveals everything. The cross, even if we want to play with the word a little bit, the cross probes everything. That's exactly what the cross does, isn't it? It exposes the sinfulness of our sin and our plight before God. The cross upends worldly wisdom and status and categories and paradigms, self-worth and success. The cross explodes our pretensions that anything in us merits the salvation we've received, the status that we have in Christ. The cross reduces all of that human effort and status to nothing before God. The cross of Christ in this, in this chapter, it, it looms so large that it almost blots out everything else. It's the word of the cross. And that's the word Paul says here in these verses, does the work of subverting, boasting, and redirecting it. 
Here's another way we might summarize these verses, and we'll move very quickly through them and finish with some reflections about what this might mean for us this morning. Uh, It's a fairly simple flow of ideas, isn't it, as you look at verses 26 and following. Not you, from him, in Christ. Not you, from him, in Christ. And it's a beautiful sequence. Look with me, verses 26 to 29. Do you see the triple not that Paul uses there in verse 26? Not many wise, not many powerful, not many well-born. Paul relentlessly undermines any claim to merit that might be inherent in us, any claim of inherent worth. Why did God choose you? Not, not for anything in you. Verses 27 and 28 continue. By contrast, even by surprising reversal, and this time we've got another tripled phrase. Do you see that one? In those two verses, what is it? God chose, God chose, God chose. Salvation by faith in Christ crucified is a result of God's electing choice. It's a result of God's sovereign election. And what's more, whom did God choose in these verses? It's staggering. What sorts of people did God choose to save? Yes, there were some few wealthy and well-born and connected in Corinth. There were some, but not many, Paul says. And he brings our attention in these verses to the fact that God saves particularly, he delights to save those whom the world sees no value in. They have nothing that they bring to the table. And God delights by the word of the cross and by faith in Christ to save them. God's election of sinners, particularly the lowest of the low in worldly terms, was one means, Paul says, that he was setting about to destroy worldly wisdom in Corinth and beyond Corinth. So do you want to talk about cancel culture that we hear about so much these days? This is divine cancel culture in the strongest terms. God cancels all of you, all of us, There's no worth that you bring to the table. He won't have any of it. No boasting. Canceled. Gone. Done. God nullifies all social capital. He reveals that all human beings stand before him as completely and utterly spiritually, not just socially, but spiritually bankrupt. Without his choice, without his calling, and we know this, don't we, because of our own lives and our own experience of faith in Christ and being saved by God. We know that without a new creation, there's, there's no way for nothings like we are, like we were, to be made into a new creation uh, by Christ unless his work and his word penetrates our lives. And what's the result then of all of this? All of this divine cancellation? Verse 29, boasting is subverted. We place our hands with, with Job over our mouths. We have nothing to say. We recognize our unworthiness before a holy God, our creator. And we begin, we begin as well to see the depth of his love and his grace, his electing love and grace that we didn't deserve, that reached out to save us when he chose us and when he called us to himself. Not us from him in Christ. Look at verse 30. The first part of verse 30 is we hear this from him It rings in our ears. It's the second prong of that reversal in our text. Rather from him, from God comes our election. From God comes our calling. From God comes all the initiative, all the agency, 
the entire completion of this work of salvation in Christ. It's, it's repeating the of God that ended verse 29. It's picking it up, it's fronted, it's emphatic. From him, from him. Paul moves there in that little phrase from subverting worldly boasting towards inverting it, redirecting it towards its proper object, the one in whom we ought to boast. Just consider again for a moment this focus on divine calling on divine election, divine sovereignty for a moment. As we sit here this morning, morning devotions, Westminster Seminary, California, what does this mean for us? It means, of course, that you didn't save yourself. You know this, but be reminded of this by this text. You did not save yourself, God did. You didn't even get yourself to seminary, did you? God brought you to seminary. God, God arranged things sovereignly, providentially, so you could you could be where you are this morning, where you are this week. You won't establish your own successful ministry someday. That's not gonna be your work. That's gonna be God's work. He will establish your ministry for you by his sovereign work. You're not gonna save others, no matter how eloquent you're, you're preaching, no matter how hard you work with Dr. Troxel and on homiletics and do work hard, this is not an excuse, but no matter how hard you work, no matter how polished that is, you're not gonna save anybody. God's going to save by the word of the cross as that's faithfully proclaimed. And so sometimes even your most rubbish sermon and you sit down after the service and you think, what on earth, Lord, I, I, I really tried hard. It just didn't feel like it was happening. And maybe you'll have that experience of someone coming up to you afterwards and you realize that even in your weakness, trying to be faithful, God himself has faithfully saved someone and brought them to himself through the word of the cross. You won't be able to remain blameless until the end, faithful to your Lord. But, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. The one who called you into the covenant community of his son, the one who in verses four to nine poured out every spiritual blessing, every grace that you need so that you lack nothing, he's the one who's gonna preserve you to the end. So let's be reminded, brothers and sisters, by these verses of, of those wonderful truths of divine calling, divine election, the surprising reversal, and that that's all, all, all from God. Verses 30 and 31, and we move towards our ending here. It's not us, not you, from God in Christ. This finishes off that subversion of boasting and the inversion and redirection of where our boasting ought to land. Because here in verses 30 and 31, we come to the focal point. This is where the glory belongs. Boasting subverted comes to rest then on its proper object, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our attention, all of our praise, all of our thanks, all of our love, all of our glory lands where it ought to, on Jesus Christ, our mediator, who is expressed to us as mediator here in Paul's terms as our wisdom. That is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. It's beautifully phrased. It's another triplet after he unpacks what it means quite that Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our wisdom, of course, because in Corinth and in our world, worldly wisdom needs to be completely undermined and flipped on its head. And here comes the Lord Jesus Christ 
God's son himself crucified on a cross like a slave. And this is the revelation of God's wisdom that the world has no category for, but that breaks in in all of its cruciform glory. Christ, our justification, our righteousness, his atoning death on the cross for our sins, his perfectly obedient life that counts for us, all of it done for us. Christ, our sanctification. Does this start to stir anything up in you, these words that we know? I hope, I hope as, we, as we linger over them for these moments and as you take them away, that this stirs up in you a desire to, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. These are, these are doctrines that ought to engender uh, that kind of response in us. In Christ, we're set apart, aren't we? He's our sanctification. In Christ, we find everything we need for growth in holiness by his grace, by his spirit. He's the one who's gonna present us blameless to the end. Christ, our redemption. In him, we're set free. Set free from the shackles of sin that bound us, free from death, its, its power, its penalty. We're set free. In Christ, we've got everything we need. Can you think of anything that you would add to this package, this glorious package there in verses 30 and 31? This is where our boasting ought to land. So what what does this suggest to us this morning? What about our spiritual lives? We know, uh, and many of you have been here for a while know, it's it's a struggle, uh, sometimes a special, peculiar kind of struggle in seminary to continue to keep your spiritual life growing. As you study, as you spend late nights mastering vocabulary and paradigm, how can these verses help us in that respect? Well, I think I think these offer us great, uh, uh, great truths to pray over and to meditate over. It might be worth spending some time today, tomorrow, in the coming week with verses 30 and 31, praying that the Lord would help you understand more deeply his all-sufficient grace and glory in Christ, praying that he'd help you to rest in Christ, who's done it all. He's your wisdom. He's your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So take that away with you into, uh, into your devotional life. What about your studies? I think this also pushes us in our studies. Uh, in fact, I hope it motivates us to study harder, to study harder, but also to study more prayerfully, to pray as we study. Why? What are you, what are you after? What did you come to seminary for? Don't you wanna make this grace and this glory more evident, more clear, more articulate so that people can hear it and receive it and be saved and transformed? Well, pray and study to that end. There is so much there in, in Christ, our wisdom, etc., to be unpacked across the curriculum here. How do we understand Christ's work as mediator? How do we understand that in relation to election? How do we understand the fullness of his perfect and complete work? Well, get to work, study hard so that you can explain this clearly and so that someday you can help others as well to be glorying in Christ Jesus. And what about that ministry that the Lord has for you? We heard last week about the the, the new works that God has prepared for us to walk in. And that's a beautiful thought from Ephesians 2.10, isn't it? And here, I think, we're propelled towards that ministry. And we need to begin now to prayerfully cultivate an attitude, a a, a cross-shaped, cruciform attitude, I think, towards our ministries that's focused on and empowered by the word of the cross. Don't be blind in your ministry to where the power lies. It's not with you. 
It's, it's, it's all with the Lord, and it's all with his word, made affected by his spirit. It's that word of the cross that you need to remain faithful to. And don't be blind either to the kinds of people that Paul is pointing to here in our text that God has chosen to save. It's easy for us to see the people like us who by the world's standards have some resources, have some status, and it's very hard to see sometimes and hard to prayerfully dedicate and give attention to ministry among those who are socially the nothings among us, isn't it? But that's something else that we're called to do in our ministries. Don't lose sight of that. So we finish with a paraphrase of Psalm 115, verse one, which I think is fitting here with our text. Not to us, O Lord Christ, not to us, but to your name be glory. Brothers and sisters, glory in the cross of Christ, glory in the grace of God in Christ, glory in Christ, your wisdom and your mediator. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and we cast ourselves down before you now because we, as we listen to this, know that we are full of pride, full of arrogance, full of every kind of sin and wickedness, and that apart from your grace, we would be left in our sin. And so we rejoice that you've saved us in Christ, and we pray that you would help us to be more and more focused on the glory of our mediator and less and less focused on ourselves or the things that this world holds up before us. We ask that you would do this in us by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.